Insight and Awareness Spiritual Explorer. Soul Intuitive, Emotional and Spiritual Mentor and Award-winning Author, Lorraine Nylon. Welcome, Explorers. Thank you for being part of the adventure. Today, our guest is Jeff Golden, and he's written a book called Reclaiming the Sacred, Healing Our Relationship with Ourselves and the World. Thank you for being part of this, Jeff. I am very curious to ask you, why have you written this book? And and how did you come to understand all the stuff that you have in your book? Well, hello to you and hello to everyone listening. It's a pleasure to be here. And right off the bat, this very first question just helps to explain why I'm delighted to be here. Most times when I talk with people, it's very quick. And I'm talking with people where I can't maybe assume a lot about their viewpoints of the world or how they might respond to me. But I love it because right off the bat with this very first question, I'm going to answer in what is for me the truest way. This book, I was a medium for this book. This book is the most purposeful thing I've experienced in my life. And I say that as someone who has lived with deep purpose throughout my life. I worked on this book for over 10 years and knew on such a deep cellular level that this was what I was meant to be doing. And I could tell, and it's an interesting and fun story, actually, the more logistical concretes why I wrote this, how I wrote it, what motivated it. But I'm going to go ahead and just go to that deeper, honest truth with you and say, this book was meant to be written. And it was such an honor to me the way that it unfolded for me and through me. This was not at all the book that I thought I was writing. But yes. the way that, yeah, that yeah, sounds yeah. familiar, right? Yeah. 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 No, not at all. And it's gone through many revisions. But it was clear with each revision that it was moving in the right direction and there was more that needed to be opened up. And at times I was frustrated at how long it was taking and I'd get distracted by something or something would be just sticking. And then six months later or a year later when I would come back to that section, it was just so obvious why it wasn't coming then because something that I had lived and seen or learned in that interim period just opened something entirely fresh and new that couldn't have been written before. And that's the way this entire book unfolded for me was um, sometimes a slog and sometimes just running into a wall. But eventually every time sort of this luminous door opening, even if it wasn't where I thought it was going to be, I look over there and there it is and we move through and something else entirely new and beautiful unfolded. So Again, I'm glad to be here and I'm glad that even with the very first question, I can already start by just speaking on that deep purpose level around what this was like and, and what it's been like as a gift for me to get to be the medium for this book. And, and see, I have a view on those books that are like that. So mm. I, I call them living documents. Mm. So when, when, something's been, when something's been written that way, mm. even for the reader, they should read it that way as well. You know, as in if they come into a section and they're reading it and they don't understand it, I would say put a sticky note on it and go away, come back a couple of days later or come back a week later or a month later or whatever, and I I bet you that you've had the experiences that when you read it again, you go, I so get that. Right, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And it's interesting too because it's not just – 
should we say like a forward progression, like I keep evolving and my understandings deepen. And so now I look back on the book and some of those parts seem old or immature. No, it's a little bit more like, wow, I was in such a deep place when I wrote that or wow, where did that come from? Like, and because it was over 10 years and because at this point um, it's been about six to seven months since I did the last edit and started making it available, I find myself having to go back and look at it at times to remind myself. I just went so deep in certain areas that I can't hold that all. And sometimes I myself have to go back and look at this and will be like, wow, something was really coming through me that day or that month because I am being opened by this now rather than being the one who's helping to open or feed it, if that makes sense. It does. Well, yeah. That's what I call a living document. So yeah. even sometimes when I go back and I read my own stuff, I can read it like I didn't write it. You know, mm-hmm. like I go, oh, but it's because you're at a different <laughs> layer, you know, right. a, di- yeah. a different understanding. Yes. And, yeah. and I even had someone um, – quote something to me and I went that's brilliant who wrote that (laughs) and she went you did and I went oh okay (laughs) I didn't even recognize it was my stuff so so that's that's what I refer Mm -hmm. to as living documents your your book is packed with a lot of stuff this is a book that you you more or less have to take your time with it to to really absorb it but um I really liked one of your statements in the book where it talks about the poverty of spirit where mm-hmm. where where materialisticness has taken away our in my words I'll, I'll convert it to my words yeah, our yeah. our comprehension of ourselves and our mm-hmm. our inner relationship has been yes. intercepted mm-hmm. with all these different things in our materialistic world so how do you view the world we live in how is that impacting us how is it affecting the way we feel about ourselves mm-hmm. Yeah. For better and for worse, one of the things that I think this book offers is that I can be a bridge for many people who are themselves living in the way that you described, that are living in this society that is Mother Teresa. She was referring to the United States, but I think that this is true for many cultures worldwide now as corporate capitalism and a particular way of seeing the world and experiencing the world having having globalized. Um, She said that the poverty of spirit that she experienced in the United States was greater than any she had experienced anywhere in the world. And that is a central idea of this book, is that there is so much joy, presence, belonging, purpose, love that are inherent to us and to the world. And yet they get pressed out, um, boxed in, we get disconnected from them, I think was what you, the word you were using. Yeah. And but that is but our inherent condition is much more of those. And there is a Rumi quote that I love and I used in the book for one of the chapters that says something like, Don't seek for love, seek out the barriers between you and love that have been erected within you. And that for me is just a fundamentally powerful and transformative truth that it's not about going out into the world and seeking a particular situation or book or guru that we have to um, 
tap into and connect with in order to become this this fuller person it's inherent to our being and it's more about that inner journey of opening to it and seeing where we've maybe disconnected ourselves from these inherent conditions of joy and love and spirit oh i so agree actually that that just about sums up the work that i do because Mm -hmm. i'm looking at the barriers that people have to really having an honest relationship with themselves, which, you know, I've got myself as well. And of I, I always say when you when you resolve something or you explore something, you start, cre- instead of these barriers being like brick walls, mm-hmm. they become like honeycomb, that you're pushing holes through them and you're weakening every time you resolve something you're, or, or really understanding something, you're weakening mm-hmm. those barriers to mm-hmm. fully embracing yourself and right. fully embracing the eternalness of your soul. Right. Yeah. Right. And that so often each of those honeycombs is itself transformative. So it's not even just the liberation of that part of ourselves and that joy and freedom, right? But it actually allows us to step up to another level through the insights, some of the challenges, right? I mean, yeah, I know definitely. you speak about this in your podcast and the episodes I've listened to yeah and and the other big thing is that everything we resolve within ourselves also takes that energy out of the mass so there's Mm -hmm. less you know say I always use resentment as an example but say you resolve your resentment you're taking that resentment out of the mass energy which gives more room for compassion or kindness absolutely so, yes yeah so it's like celebrate that as well we, and we yes. don't we don't really take a lot of notice to our interconnection to the world so right. yeah right. the i think it's it's well it's both a central point of this book and just a wondrous blessing that um based on the science and to be clear this book is based on the research of thousands of different psychologists and economists, as well as cosmologists and activists, saints and poets. So I'm in there for sure in some of my personal stories and thoughts, but it also is very much built on the foundation of the work of so many other people. And there are about 1,200 footnotes in the book, yes. you might have noticed, <laughs> and notes. Yeah. Um, one of the central points in the book, and really, I think, an immense blessing for us is that the path that these scientists and that I describe in the book that can help us each tap into this greater joy and purpose that is inherent to us and love and awe is also fundamentally the path that we need to be walking individually and collectively to address some of the greatest crises of our times. The massive amount of violence and destruction in the world And in the book, I focus especially on global warming because global warming and where we're going with that will easily surpass anything that we've ever experienced before as humans, at least since about 70,000 years ago. Um, It surpasses world wars and plagues and on and on. And there are many things that have to be done and that lots of people are focusing on that are about, well, how do we build this in a greener way or how do we reduce the carbon emissions and so forth but there is something that is just fundamentally flawed that is fueling the consumption and materialism that's driving so much of that destruction and that is relentless that is powerful and relentless is as a system and as individuals we can get so locked into that and feel so dependent on a particular lifestyle a particular pursuit and so 
stepping back from that and dropping into the abundance of ourselves and the world and this inherent miraculousness of us and the world and beauty and love, as we start to let ourselves be filled with that, it takes up the spaces that money and possessions were trying to fill and distract us from and, and help us maybe boost our egos a little bit by feeling those. And so the call both for us, I think, as individuals and collectively is that we need to all be walking this kind of path and it will look different for each one of us. Yeah, definitely. But to speak to what you were saying, it's not only, well, what a gift that if I walk this path, I get to experience my own liberation but as you mentioned, we're also removing that from this larger system. And we're part of a cultural shift that can acknowledge that 98% of what we've just been living by and the assumptions that we've been um, guided by through media, as well as you know, friends and family and generations going back now, and, and primarily our economic system and corporations, is profoundly flawed backwards even in terms of what actually nourishes our well-being so we not only get to step more fully into that and who wouldn't want that but it's actually one of the fundamental steps we need to be taking to start to step back from this massive violence and destruction that we're sowing in the world as well oh for sure and it's it's interesting because it makes sense when you understand human nature and and the, the dark side of us it makes sense to me why people are so materialistic and why our fears are actually steering us and we don't recognise them as fears, so we can't address them. But, you know, we we walk into a room full of people and we have this great fear of being judged, right? Mm-hmm. So, so what we do is we try to alleviate that potential. So we, you know, so that's where brands come in. You know, mm-hmm. if you wear this brand, it says this about you. If you drive this car, it right. says this about you. Right. So we've externalised everything right. as a way of trying to identify who we are right. instead of actually doing the the inner work, which can be very scary for some people. And oh. once you get past that first barrier, you love it. Right, right, you, right. You can't, you, you're in. So it, 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 well, I'm going to just say I, I would say probably more for me it's it's ups and downs. Probably each time there's a little bit of, pain or angst or like even <laughs> dread about going near this next thing that's revealing itself but as it starts to work itself through there's the sweetness right and the lightness and this yeah. part of you that gets liberated but i just wanted to be honest about that part for me at least i wish that it was just get through an initial barrier and it kind of oh no 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 <laughs> sorry i haven't I you myself to say that, but just oh, to be honest like, every, being confronted with yourself is a big thing right so right. and and even when you think you've got stuff sorted out, all of a sudden you've an event's going to happen, right? And bang, yeah. you know you're going to think you you're back in the fetal position, going, "I know nothing," and right. you've got to rebuild. Yeah. But every time you do that, so so for you, there's a wealth of information in this book. So how did you get on the path, or mm-hmm. or, or how did it start for you to actually really be prepared to have that level of honesty? Yeah. I'm going to say that fundamentally the most significant thing was that I was walking this path myself. I had been doing some of this deep work of facing some of my own fears and shames and suppression of different kinds of emotional places within myself. So I was myself personally experiencing some of that liberation. That 
was fundamental to being able to write this book. Where the book goes, and as you mentioned, it spans a lot of terrain. It looks at the psychology of happiness. It looks at some of what you were referring to about the psychology of money. How is it that money hooks us? Mm -hmm. It looks at the way that our materialism channels itself and gets directed into so much destruction and violence in the world. And then, of course, in the final part, it says, now, how do we step back from that and just look at this from a completely different perspective and just embrace the wonder and miracle of us and this world? And I could have written all of that to some degree just based on all of the research that I was looking at and all of the wonderful people who've written about some of these different topics. But I think that what works for many people and why it resonates and why I'm delighted to say it won some of these recent awards is because it resonates on a heart level because I'm bringing my heart and I'm speaking from that place. I'm not speaking hypothetically about what it means to walk this path. Very clearly in the book, I lay out the ways in which, oh, I'm still walking this path. Mm. I'm by no means up here telling all of you how to do this. I'm in here with you. But for a lot of people, I've walked the path further than they have, and I can give them some guidance on what it looks and feels like. And I can do it from that same place of love and joy and presence and not ego or, uh, for example, materialism. I mean, 100% of the profits from this book are going to several different nonprofits, not because I don't need money like everyone else to get certain things done in the world, but because the joy and love that has come through me into this book and now going out into this world, that's what was meant to be. Those are the kinds of things that I can bring to it when I myself have done some of this work of liberating myself from some of these just negative assumptions that drive us in some of those other directions. Yeah. Well, I read your part on um, shame and when you were sta standing in the mirror and, and putting down, well, I call them your negative self-beliefs. Yeah. And and there's not a person alive that um, if they were willing, you know, wouldn't go through right. a whole pad to go, you know, because once you start identifying those self-beliefs that you have, yeah. then you realise how much they're steering you. Yes. Which is, yeah. you, you know, and and that always shocks us. You know, when it's a, you know, and it's a big thing to get your head around. Oh yeah, yeah. And to start to draw near to them and start to draw close to them and touch them a little bit and open them up. They have so much power. Yeah. Uh, for for anyone listening who hasn't read the book, I'll just briefly describe the exercise that I do um, in my classes, which have been in a college setting and online. I do this activity where I've written down. And there are about 12 of them or more of my deepest shames, like those beliefs I have about myself of things that are just sort of wrong with me. And I'm not saying I even necessarily believe them in my head, but I'm just being honest about the power they have within me. They sit in a deep place. So these are the things that I don't want anyone to know or even think about when it comes to me. And I wrote them out just in a few words, each one on a little yellow sticky pad piece of paper. And one by one, I read them out loud and stick them on myself, which is itself powerful and transformative to be able to just voice those and acknowledge them. It already that steals some of their power. You're already saying, well, I can't be so bad because I can actually name them. But I'll tell you, I've done it many times and every time it's still by the end, I'm a little bit woozy. Um, but the point of the activity is, first of all, to normalize what you're saying. 
that this is basically all or most of us is how we move through this world. And then we talk about the impact. Well, what are the different ways that people respond to their shames? And the word shame originally actually comes from something that has to do with hiding or to hide something mm -hmm. because these are the things that we lock away. Um, we don't want other people to see them. And so we look at the ways that they change our behaviors, our relationships, the ways we do or don't put ourselves out there in our lives and in our work and the world in general. And then towards the end, what we get to do is look at now, what does it look like to start to remove these? And it's a little simplistic because sort of, as you were saying, I wouldn't say that any of those I have gotten to completely remove. They all still exist in me, but I've softened them so much. I've been able to draw close to some of them. One of the ones that has been really powerful through my life is that I am so sensitive. And I can almost say that now with just delight and pride and joy and want to be like, doesn't everyone want to be incredibly sensitive versus so many deep messages that I'd lived with and sort of physical repercussions. I mean, being bullied growing up where this sensitivity is not, is not a good thing. It's, and I'm going to say there's a gender aspect to it as well. I think especially for men being sensitive, being tough is the number one thing you've got to be doing and being sensitive. No. And, and I learned that again, whether I intellectually ever agreed with it, I took that on. And it was only when I got later in life that I started to recognize how did this get into me? And I mean, because I hate so many things that have to do with masculinity and men, and this somehow got inside me and is working from the inside out. No, <laughs> I have to, I have to work on this, but we look at what are the paths for drawing closer to each of these and starting to open them a little bit and soften them. And as I just mentioned, even perhaps draw them close and love them and start to celebrate them. Right. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I, I actually did a workshop on the weekend and I said to one of the people there, I said that there's things that I started looking at 30 years ago and I'm still looking at them, mm -hmm. you know, cause we're, we're in a culture where we're going, just fix it, get rid of it so I can move on and never think about it. But when you're dealing with your own um, inner self, it's right. not like that because it's so layered. And and shame I always refer to as the hidden world mm -hmm. because we don't identify it as a, sh as a shame, yeah. but we respond to it like it is. So, you know, we yeah. can feel unworthy. And, we and, and specialists in all kinds of fields have have equally come to this place of recognizing that shame is one of the driving forces in all of our lives. It shapes our societies to a large mm. degree. It controls us in many ways and never for the good. Brene Brown, who's done a lot of work around shame, and I use the term self-love. Um, people talk about self-acceptance or self-compassion sometimes, but whatever language you want to use, okay. I will say something that you said a moment ago I wanted to speak to. Mm -hmm. which is that I encourage people to look at shame and the journey of, of relieving ourselves of some of the power of those shames in two different lights. And one is the one that you and I have just been talking about, which is that these things are deep and powerful and the journey of healing them is long. And to be honest, I expect that I will die with these shames still within me with a certain degree of power. So in a sense, the goal isn't that I'm going to ever get to transcend these completely, but that 
I get to learn and grow. They will soften. I will grow as a human being, perhaps understand things even better or have greater empathy for other people or insight than I ever could have without those. Another perspective, though, is that there's a story that's told about a conference, and I cannot remember, but I, I want to give credit to the person, but I'm not remembering her name right now, so I'm just going to say that she tells the story about being at a conference with the Dalai Lama, probably about 1994 or so, and they each got to ask a question. And hers was, what do you think of self-hatred? And he looked at her. And he looked at the translator and asked the translator something, and the translator said something. And they were discussing something for a while. And he turned back to her and he said, um, I don't understand. Can you say more about self-shame, uh, about self-hatred? And so she talked about some of the patterns that she saw in her clients and in her meditation classes and so forth. The patterns of just the negative talk that goes on, the ways that we try and adapt to be what we think other people want to see, all these different ways that we do, hiding ourselves, even with our closest companions and friends and loves, hiding parts of ourselves. And the Dalai Lama once again turned to the translator and once again turned to her and said, in, a, in, a, in, in essence, that he was stumped, that he thought he understood human nature to a high degree but he had never heard of this, didn't understand. He said, how can you think of this? How can you think of yourself this way when we all have Buddha nature? Which is of course what you and I were saying earlier about, but it's inherent to us, this joy, this worthiness, this purpose, this love. He was like, how can that be possible? Now I think this story is powerful and important because it creates for me the possibility that actually Maybe we really can just get beyond all of this. Maybe it is completely cultural that we take on so much negativity and so much baggage of putting ourselves down, again, at some point to the degree where we beat other people to the punch and we just keep ourselves locked up and beat ourselves up inside. Maybe, and she says, I don't want to romanticize Buddhism or Tibetan culture or the Dalai Lama, but consider the fact that there could exist a culture where that kind of negative sort of shame, self-judgment was actually just unnatural to the degree that it was unheard of and where people moved in the world from this place of their Buddha nature or from this place of joy and wonder and connectedness, right? And I do think that lots of people in different cultures have lived that way. To me, it's an interesting thing to consider that oh, it's not just that there's a little bit of shame or less shame, but maybe that's actually just something that doesn't exist in their culture that same way. I think it gives us, it gives us a beautiful way of thinking of ourselves and understanding ourselves. It's an alternative to, well, I'm just going to always have this. It's kind of inherent to me. I think that there's wisdom in holding both of those. You know, oh, I agree. Because this is the way I look at that, is mm -hmm. the reality, if, if I stripped away your emotional baggage, and there was mm -hmm. just the purity of who you are, mm -hmm. then there is no possible way that you would have any self-loathing or shame right. or guilt. Right. You know, that's you in your natural essence. Right. When we put the the baggage and, you know, everything we don't know how to cope with, and unfortunately mm. what we do is we project everything mm. that we don't deal with we we pass we try to get rid of it we by giving it to someone else so mm -hmm. you know like jealousy mm -hmm. we'll attack somebody you know yeah. and we'll run them down and we use judgment and we use all these mm -hmm. weapons against each other because we refuse to look at the truth of ourselves yeah 
So I, I do think it's possible that we can evolve. Do I think we can do it this lifetime? I'm not sure. You know what I mean? But I think that when, I th- and I also believe when we cross over, we, we are aware of our emotional baggage, mm-hmm. but we don't take it with us. Mm. That it sort of stays in this realm, mm. but it's got our label on it. It's got our name on it. And as soon as mm-hmm. we come back in, guess what? Everything right. we haven't dealt with, she's yours. So, uh-huh. and, and I refer to that as, you know, somewhere along the line, you've got to clean up your own backyard. Mm-hmm. So, so that everything that you've created that's out of kilter or off kilter with the truth of who you are is going to be in that emotional baggage. And as you go through life and you have these different experiences, they're presenting you with opportunities right. to resolve what you're carrying or it's an opportunity for you to start recreating and adding back to the emotional baggage. But we're the pivotal point. Yeah. We're the one deciding. Right. So, so if we don't understand that there is a possibility, then we're not going to go looking. We're not going to try. So you do need to have those those understandings of who you naturally are. I, I read in your book you referred to as your um, your inner song, you know, the song of who you are. Right. Yeah. So to me, when I write, I call that uniqueness. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, so can you explain that, what you mean by the song within? Well, I'm going to say what I think of. That is a beautiful quote from, I believe, a Danish or Norwegian poet whose name I cannot remember right now. But what they say is that to love another person is to basically sing back to them their song when they've forgotten it. Right. I think you know from from looking at the book that there's a whole section that looks at the nature of love. And I, I think that this is not the fullness of it, but I think this is a beautiful quality. And I, I that's why I start the book this way. And I almost end it with this, because for me, the purpose of the book is largely to sing back to people the song of their beauty, which is different for each one of us. And yet the beauty is universal. And so that's what that reference to is, is the song of our lives, the song of our beings, the song of who we are. And for each of us to get to be there for each other at those times when it's a little bit hard or we've forgotten and to just maybe quietly sing it into each other's ears or powerfully sing it into each other's ears through all of our different creations, movies and conversations and friendships and books and things like yeah. that. See, I, and I, I look at that as respecting the uniqueness of that other soul. Mm-hmm. In, in, and if you consciously decide that you don't want to project what is unresolved within you, you know, I don't want to lash out my jealousy on you. Yes, right, right. right. So, so then I can choose to to be respectful of your uniqueness. Yeah. And where yes. I see people losing that, there's I, I see a big change in how people are responding to one another and that their inability to cope with what is in their emotional baggage is mm. oozing out. Right. I think it's really interesting what you were saying about the emotional baggage, even when we leave this life, is is there waiting for us? And you, you sort of offhand threw out there this question of how prepared are we for this kind of personal evolution, right? Yeah. And one of the things that has come up for me in talking with people both about these two journeys I mentioned, this personal one, as well as the personal one, but as it relates to the larger journey 
and the violence and destruction in the world. And the question has come up, are you optimistic? Is this an optimistic book? Do you really believe that we are going to be able to go out there and make this kind of massive transformation? And what I think is so beautiful is that regardless of what we think of the bigger picture and where we think things are going or what might change or what might not, the fact that we ourselves as individuals have such a tremendous capacity for change and that it serves us so well as individuals, there's no reason not to walk that path. And on that one, I am very optimistic because I already said that I think I'm going to die with a certain degree of my emotional baggage, regardless of the amount of work that I'm doing, how much love I'm doing. And yet I've seen in myself and I've seen in so many other people what even just one twist can do in terms of how we just understand something differently or unlock something that's been closed up, something that we've been holding onto so tightly and keeping at a distance. It can absolutely transform how we experience ourselves, the relationships that we're in, the work that we're doing. And so in that sense, I'm deeply optimistic. And so it might be another question of, well, am I so optimistic that we're going to get to that point of not having any baggage? Mm, I'm not necessarily going there, but I am so optimistic about the potential within each one of us to experience greater liberation in this lifetime. And I think that's the starting point. Then that's where we should start. And let's move towards these more joyful, purposeful, wondrous lives that also feed into this essential transformation that has to be taking place. I absolutely agree. So I'm going to ask you the big question we ask all the guests Mm -hmm. is, what does humanity need to acknowledge and understand for us to evolve? Mm-hmm. Well, and as you know, from all the answers you've gotten, the different podcasts, I think there's a <laughs> lot, there's a lot out there. But for me, what I'm sitting with right now that is just so fresh and powerful is what we've been talking about our inherent joy and wonder and purpose and belonging and love. And those are all topics that we explore throughout the journey of the book. And it really gets back to what you were saying and what I was referring to in terms of in the absence of that as an individual and in a culture where that is absent, where it's not just woven into the fabric of our society that aren't we all wondrous beings? And isn't this a miracle, another day, another breath, light, color, right? All of this. When it's the opposite, when it's just woven into the culture, the fabric of the culture, that we are nothing, you aren't worth anything. Those are the messages that come at us over and over again. You're only worth as much as you're successful financially or in terms of your material possessions, all these kinds of things. It naturally sows the kind of violence and destruction that we're seeing at a a society level and at an interrelational level and at the interpersonal level, as you refer to as well. I mean, the way that we cut ourselves up all the time, but, and then the way that we cut others, the way that we relate to each other. And even if it's not cutting something that so often happens, it was um, a therapist I'm working with right now who talked about it being a pinball machine. If I, you talked about entering a room and fearing judgment. If I walk into a room and before anyone's even said anything, I'm already making assumptions about what they're thinking or feeling when they see me. And then someone does say something and maybe they actually even say something that is super complimentary, but I'm already hearing it 
through this lens of not enough and less than, or maybe some horrible things that other kids told me or that someone in my family, my parents told me growing up that's gotten in me. And I think that's who I am. I, first of all, I'm not really going to believe them. I'm not going to be able to fully receive it because I'm like, I, cause I don't believe that myself, but also it's going to absolutely shift what I hear and then how I respond. So mm. you maybe just said something very complimentary and I hear it as sort of um, sarcastic or, oh, you're just saying that. And so then what I, what do I say? Well, then I respond out of something that's from my fear and shame based here. And then who knows what's going on with you because you're this complex being with your own set of sticky notes, right? Yeah. And yours happens to be one that say had to do with being, um, well, I talked about one of my other ones was like just not being sexy. And I didn't date or have sex really until I was in college. And I felt like everything on our society was telling me, oh, <laughs> that's about as bad as it gets. You are just <laughs> undesirable, not worthy. And I can laugh about it. But I mean, I've been talking about this and dealing with this for a couple of decades now. It got into me so deep that I wouldn't be able to just say those words because it felt like it's not like when we look at someone else's shame, we can see, oh, well, that's your dad talking or, well, that's those, that's the movies you saw when you were a kid talking. But when it's us, yeah. it's gotten in there in a way that it feels true. So talking about it feels like, not like I'm describing this thing that got into me somehow, but it's not really me. It's like a big neon sign I'm pulling out that's flashing and being like, loser, less than, like, so not being sexy. So here we are in this conversation and I'm feeling like, oh my God, I'm so unattractive. And you got this thing going on, like, I'm not sexy. And maybe there's actually even some good chemistry, but we're both over there. So it's this pinball thing where it just ricochets off of. And what we really want to do is relate to each other in the truth of who we are mm. and our purpose and potential and just be in that richness. And maybe we still might have some disagreements or not get along, but great, it's based on reality. But for so many of us, we can hardly even get there because we get so caught up in the reactive pinball of like, oh God, they don't like me. I'm just going to get quiet. And then they're over there going like, oh, look at him. He's so quiet. He's over there judging us. You know, he thinks he's better than us, you know? <laughs> and then I'm like, oh God, look at the way they're looking at me. I'm leaving. And they're like, he thinks he's better than us. He just left, you know? <laughs> like, so anyway, I like that analogy of the pinball machine. I think it's very effective. So again, in that case, it wasn't even that we necessarily cut each other down. It's just that, oh, what a ridiculous web we're weaving yeah. that just limits our potential as me and yeah. as us, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I talk a lot about the ricochet in mm -hmm. in um, one of my books because yeah, we are bouncing, great. yeah, we're bouncing off one another. And right. it's really interesting. Um, a friend once said to me, when someone insults you, you ask them, what do you mean by that? And mm. I was like, what? And he goes, well, our first reaction is mm -hmm. to pull it in and, and, and I'm going to convert it to my words now, right. is that we pull it in and we, we suppress it with the other shame that we have. Mm -hmm. So this person thinks that I'm less than or, you know, not good enough. I've wrote a lot mm -hmm. about not good enough. Yeah. And his approach was, no, what you do is you ask them, what did you mean by that? Because as soon as someone has to be accountable for their words, mm -hmm. they will either retreat from it and you'll be right. able to identify this right. was a this was a cannonball shot 
that right. they weren't going to stand up and do, you know what I mean, own it. Yeah, right. So you see the person that delivered it. And if you right. see the person that delivers it is has got no substance behind what they're doing, you know they're projecting out their crap and they want to get rid of it and they want you to wear it. And if you put it with your right. shame, you right. know, you you play with it. So Right, right. And if we were, if we can't hold ourselves accountable, but mm. if we're willing to, if someone does insult us, say, what do you mean by that? Right. Not aggressively, not attacking. Right. Right. But with curiosity, you know, what do you mean mm. by that? A, you can start mm-hmm. a dialogue, or B, you can see the tr- you can really observe that right. person. Right. Because there's no point joining that choir. Right. I love that. I love that. And I think also about, well, lots of things that makes me think of, but the one I'll just name that comes to mind is that part of this journey of getting to know ourselves better and releasing ourselves from these painful shames that we generally carry is that in relationships with other people, maybe the person that we're talking about insulting us, maybe it's someone that we love very dearly. Like maybe it's a very intimate partner. And well, maybe the it's not even hurt in, the most. For me, they are. That's yeah. where it hurts the most for sure. Yeah. And maybe it's not even an insult, but it's something that they just said that cuts into one of those places of shame, right? Or could potentially. Or so there's this journey of as we get to know them, we can understand them better. And let them be who they are and what they're in without reacting. But that other part is the more that we know ourselves and become become anchored and not become reactive, as you said, having that ricochet effect happening, then even if we don't get to tease out in that moment, let's say, well, what did you really mean by that? Or what are you really feeling? It means that I can be an anchor right now. I can be a rock in this relationship and in this conversation, sometimes it's just going to happen that maybe depending on what the topic is or the day we've had, neither of us is very anchored and we're both a little unmoored. And when something comes up, we're both going to just kind of float off or we're going to ricochet, right? But I think with time, what I've seen and what just feels so much better than being in that just reactive shutdown of like, oh God, I'm awful is, oh, that's not me. What's going on with that person right now? Again, it's it's an ability to hold that. Even if you can't have that conversation right then of well, what do you mean by that? Right. Mm-hmm. That would yeah. be the, that would be the ideal place to go. Is let's open this up and see what's going on for you and for me. But but if one of us can be an anchor while the other one is maybe spinning off a little, it allows them to draw down a little bit, and then maybe they can be a little bit anchored when you're like, oh, and by the way, this came up for me, and you can open that a little and be in your feelings, right? And it's sure. just it's so much more productive. And it just feels so much better, right? And it, and it is identifying sometimes a reaction's done without thought. So we're, we're in there before we realise, you know what I mean? Like so when we're reactive, when we're ricocheting. And I always say to clients and myself is try and remember the value of options. You know, when, when you feel whatever it is, that and you feel yourself react, if you can train yourself to go, now's the time to intercept and give myself options. Mm-hmm. I can respond from here. I can respond from there. Right. Sometimes you've got to give yourself a minute to think so that you respond. And, right. and sometimes the best thing you can do is walk away, say nothing. 
Right. Yeah. But you've got to do it from a place where you're objectively observing your own reaction. Right. Instead of taking on that they're an authority over how you should feel about yourself. Right. And and that's what I mean by giving yourself options. It's like that people external to me don't have the authority to dictate how I should feel about myself. Right. And, and give yourself permission to hold that space, which is your anchor. Right. But that that takes a lot of work to get to that point. And then you're in a place to be ready for what will honestly be many of your situations where maybe someone who insults you or hurts you in some way is not available to actually even have any kind of real conversation, right? Yeah, for sure. You, most you, of them wouldn't. Right. Yeah, you can ask that question. And like you said, it might sort of pop the balloon. But in terms of actual engagement, maybe they can't go there. But you're in a place where even if you recognize right away, I'm not really asking that question because that person is spinning out or triggered or isn't worth my time. They're not in my life, right? You can make those assessments for yourself, right? Even if you can't have that actual interaction. Yeah. And and, and what I understand from the person that was explaining it to me mm-hmm. is it you're not always looking for that interaction. Mm-hmm. What you're doing is calling it for yourself. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, something's been said. What do you mean by that? Right. Right. They may, yeah, they, it's not really the majority of the time you're not going to get an engagement that's going to make any sense because they're going to defend their position. As soon as they start defending their position, you're going to see exactly what it's about. You know, Mm -hmm. like say say someone's, um, I'm trying to get an example, but say someone's uh, hurt you and you confront them. You know, what do you mean by that? They've they've Mm -hmm. said something cutting about you. Let's hit that sore point. And then, their next response is, and you're not perfect. Hang on, you know it'll it'll be something strange that you'll go. Right. Okay, where's that coming from? Right. What what it actually does, and you know, it's also situational based. So sometimes it's not appropriate. But what it actually does is exposes the reality of the exchange. Mm-hmm. Like this person's intent is to actually put you down or cause you harm because what a lot of people do is they walk away and they hold it within themselves and it hits their shame points and they have the shame shudders, you know, when they go through all their history and then all this stuff comes comes up. Right. And then they're not even sure we did that. Then they, some people, not all, will go, oh, did they mean this? Did they mean that? Why did they say that? Like can people tell? Right. So right. they start questioning themselves. Right. So, so the reason why this guy said, put it on them, ask them, right. not aggressively, he was always right. like, you know, with curiosity, is you will see where they're at. So when you start questioning yourself, the other thing you'll do is go, actually, you know what? They had the mm-hmm. intent to hurt me. Mm-hmm. That's where they're at. Yeah, right. The rest you still have to deal with. Right. <laughs> You know what I mean? If if it's a sore point, it's a sore point. Right, right. There's only so much you can do. Yeah. Um, In my course, again, the college course and the online course I do around reclaiming the sacred, we do a lot of work around vulnerability. Yeah. And one of the things that sometimes comes up is related to what you were just saying, which is that I try to be clear. My goal is not that we are vulnerable, completely vulnerable with every person that we interact with. We get to use our judgment and many people are not worthy of that or aren't available for that. But what I like to say is that I don't want my vulnerability 
to be limited by my own shames. In other words, if there is a potential for us to connect on a deeper level and know each other on a deeper level, then I want to be ready and available for that. And I don't want, I want to be ready to step into that vulnerability and not be in lockdown or trying to put up a mask based on my shame. Yeah, brain. But again, very different from that doesn't mean that the average person like at the checkout center who just said something that kind of was insulting to you, you now have an obligation to be completely just open and blah with them and yeah, share everything, yeah. right? We, 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 you can only truly be vulnerable if you feel that you can trust where you're at. Otherwise, you're always going to hold something back right. and, and, and you should. You know, there's a self-protection there. But if you right. feel that, you know, because people can come together on a platform and I always say if we've both got one foot on truth, that we're looking for the truth, our intention right. is to be truthful, Right. then you've got a, you've got a safe place. Now, they might um, reject that place. It might, you know, get a bit scary for them or you might yeah. do the withdrawal, which we've all we're, experienced. Humans are very complex. We are yeah. very, very complex. Mm-hmm. So, but it's, it's that, that moment where you can identify that you can share your views and be exposed in a way right. that you're trusting yes. that the other person is meeting you at the same place. Yes. So yes. otherwise, if you try to be vulnerable to someone, I deal a lot with narcissistic um, abuse victims and I yeah. also do a lot with um, sexual abuse, childhood sexual abuse victims. Right. So there's, there's a protection mechanism that you have to have because their vulnerability is so raw and so deep Right. That they need to know that they're safe. Right. Yes. Yeah. Otherwise, they should protect themselves, but not with a you know a cement wall. Brene Brown, who's done a lot of research and and talks a lot about shame and self love, um, she says that uh, shame cannot survive words. In other words, talking with other people and sharing our stories and opening up about our feelings and experiences that absolutely is is essential to that liberation to softening those places and freeing ourselves from those shames but what she also is very clear about is that doesn't necessarily mean you just tell anyone Mm. that there's still a thoughtfulness we can still be at all times protective of ourselves we need to be right it's about seeking though the people in the situations whether it's a friend or um or a therapist it's seeking those opportunities where we can start to put words to it and and very importantly to recognize that it's not all or nothing it doesn't mean well if you're not totally vulnerable here then go home it's each tiny step is such a powerful step forward for us in our journey and in terms of the way it interacts with the people around us and ripples through them and creates possibilities for them right like you said removes things from that field yeah it does and i i think too one of the things that you know if is that we should remember that if if someone is willing or wants to be vulnerable and explain things to us mm-hmm. take that as an honor that they they are actually right. respecting you enough and feeling safe enough for you that's a sacred space you know yes. what i mean that is a sacred space so yes. if 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 you recognize that's what you're experiencing then that can release so much of the shame and the and the misconceptions. A lot of the time it's misconceptions that have created the shame. Yes. Yeah. yeah. There is a beautiful quote by John Wellwood speaking exactly to what you were just saying. Psychologist John Wellwood 
This is a quote from him in the book. It says, when we reveal ourselves to our partner, and he is referring to a romantic partner, but this is okay. relevant to anyone. When we reveal ourselves to our partner and find that this brings healing rather than harm, we make an important discovery that intimate relationship can provide a sanctuary from the world of facades, a sacred space where we can be ourselves as we are. This kind of unmasking, speaking our truth, sharing our inner struggles and revealing our raw edges is sacred activity, which allows two souls to meet and touch more deeply. Oh, I love it. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. That is you were talking exactly about how vulnerability creates that sacred space, right? Yeah. And if you recognize it, then you really turn up with that that willingness to listen. Because mm-hmm. what, what I see a lot of the times with people is they can take vulnerability as a time to jump in and try and be right. You know, I talk a lot about... When we're responding to people, give them time to tell, explain, tell their story, explain what they need to explain without quickly jumping in there and telling them what to do. Mm-hmm. And, and I think fundamentally that's one of the mistakes that we do when we're having conversations is that we're trying to impart our wisdom, we're trying to fix it, we're trying to feel important. So all these sort of ego responses right. can happen within right. us. Whereas sometimes someone needs to just debrief and hear it out loud what they're thinking internally. Yes. And and I do class that all as sacred space. Yes, absolutely. In the book, I'm able to give a lot more credit to the sources of where I've learned these things and experienced them. But I want to just name right now that there is an amazing organization called Be Present based in Atlanta, Georgia, in the United States that does really deep work in groups. They were founded by Lily Allen, one of the most extraordinary people I've ever met. And one of their practices is being in a small group and each person just speaking for a certain amount of time. I've heard the term check-in for people like at a meeting, we're going to do a quick check-in and each person like 20 seconds, what's going on with you? This is more like at least three minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes of just speaking about what's going on for you in your life right now. And the other people don't ask questions, don't give advice. That's in the rules to just give them space. For many people, it's a powerful and utterly unique way of being, both Mm. speaking and being heard on that level and knowing they're just listening. And for the listener to be able to release those things as well and just be present with this being, sharing. Again, to use your words, what a gift we're giving each other when we step into that kind of vulnerability right? But it's exactly what you're saying, getting beyond just giving advice or our own ego, or what am I going to say next? And being ready to just be present and really listen to where this human being is at and what they're sharing with us. Yeah, we learn off each other. So, and just before we go to flip the book, the the lovely story about dropping the knife in Mm. your your book that you've quoted someone else, could you just end with that story? Because I think that's brilliant. Yes. Well, the quote, it says, once a young woman asked Hafez, the epic Persian mystic and poet, what is the sign of someone knowing God? Hafez remained silent for a few moments and looked deep into the young person's eyes, then said, dear, they have dropped the knife. 
they have dropped the cruel knife most so often used upon their tender self and others. Talk yes. about stepping into the presence of the divine within us and around us. Yeah. To release that and just be with the truth and beauty, right? Yeah. And it and it the hardest thing I've found personally is to drop the knife on myself. You know what I mean? Like Absolutely. I'm, I'm still in that process of, of Absolutely. Um, yeah. Because we're Yeah. And, and some of the people who've done research around shame, they highlight that one of the strongest barriers they run up against. I mean, I think you and I have already named what I think is actually the, the most powerful, which is that we have taken these on as truths and they are so painful and powerful that to even go near them can be excruciating at times. Mm. But they cite that one of the greatest challenges is that actually a lot of us have internalized this belief that we need to be hard on ourselves so that we will improve. So that we aren't just soft and let ourselves get away with all these other things that we've been doing so that we can continue to evolve, which is actually by probably many of our practical daily lived experiences, but also by the research is the exact opposite. The potential for greater movement and change comes from being greater at ease with ourselves. The less that we're judging ourselves, the more that we can hear real feedback from other people, the more that we can actually ask for it. The, the less that we are just locking ourselves up, the more that we can reach and believe that we are worthy. I just wanted to name that because someone might be listening to this and hearing us talk about self-love and shame, and that might be a lens that they put over that. And they're like, well, okay, yes, sure, some compassion, but I got to stay on myself because I'm just this and this and this. And it's like, oh, <laughs> slow up. Uh, I can't remember his name, but one of the, the famous psychologists I cite in the book says, the wonder of it is that it's only once I accept myself as I am that I can truly change. It just flips yes. everything and opens it. Yeah. And and one of, one of the things I found, I love that, one of the things I found for myself is I was using my hindsight. So I'd had, the, had an experience, thousands of experiences actually, and then I got to this point and I would look back and I would use my hindsight to perfect my judgment of myself. You know, I should have. Right. I, I, why did I do that? I should have known right. better. Right. The, where I had to get to was that the reality was in that moment, that's how I reacted or responded, right, yeah. based on it. Right. And, and by looking back, coming forward and looking back, the hindsight is the education that I got from that experience. Right. But I didn't, I'm beating myself up because right. I was naive back then. Right. So, and what you're describing is, of course, so common. And people yeah. will will look at something and chew on it for days on end. Right. Yeah. Maybe even judging themselves in a way that the person who maybe was involved in the situation themselves didn't ever think, and has forgotten about already. And yet mm. we're still carrying something. Right. Yeah. And what sure. you're describing is already actually even such a higher level of skill. Right. Because I think that for many of us the starting place is a place where we actually can just fall into a place of such self-loathing that those words may not resonate for some people, but I think that the lived reality of just absolutely it's excruciating and shutting something down. One of the ways that, that shame often shows up is in violence and it's either absolute avoidance of violence, just making yourself small and letting everything be, or it's being violent, 
because it's so excruciating and you need to end the situation, right? So I just wanted to name that to acknowledge and give heart to someone who, who hears your process and is like, wow, maybe someday. It's like, yeah, maybe someday, but that's possible for you. And in the meanwhile, let's just work on giving in a drop of compassion even even while we acknowledge that we're just in a place of lockdown, perhaps, and that nothing else can be done for a little bit, right? And we're just here, just a little drop, and then it comes with time, right? Yeah. What, one of the things I say to clients is, and I have to remind myself of this sometimes, think of your most favorite person on the planet. And in that experience, what would you advise them to do? How would you respond to them if they were in the same, you know, thought process? And then try your best to do that for yourself. So. I love that. And if I can just share this briefly, when you were saying that, where I went in my mind, just doing, you know, I'm following your instructions. I thought of the person I already mentioned, Lily Allen, who is such an exquisite human being I admire so much. And it reminded me that with regards to what we were saying earlier about um, shame and, well, we need to be humble. We shouldn't be full of self-love. And, oh, well, people who, are, who actually love themselves are just either narcissistic or destructive. But that's not what we're talking about at no. all. And it's when you were guiding me that way that I recognized that, oh, this being of love, the way that translates is in so much care and attention and presence, everything I want to be near, right? And so mm -hmm. actually it draws me more into this journey of, how do I love myself more so that that's how I can be with other people as well? Yeah. Right? Be a friend to your soul. Yeah. So, so thank you for that exercise. Imagine someone who you dearly love and seems like they're very self-loving and in a grounded place. And do you judge them or feel bad when you're around them? Or does that feel maybe even wonderful? Hmm. Right? Yeah, definitely. So would you like to play Flip the Book? Let's play Flip the Book. Okay. You've got... Three books to pick from. Do you want book one, two, or three? Three. 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 Okay, yes. so this is what I refer to as the big book, which is the insight mm -hmm. and awareness book, which mm -hmm. is the book that I explained was the the living document. Yeah. Okay, so it'll be very right. interesting to see where we go. Okay, yes. You've got one to 430 pages to pick from. 184. 184. So out of curiosity, did you hear that or feel it? It just came to me the same way that book three did. So okay. I'm going to say it was even, I can't even know whether it was a feeling or, a, uh, you know, up here or down here, but it just was, that's what came. You heard it. Love it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you've got um, four paragraphs to pick from. Ooh, I don't know. It just came to me four. So, four. Okay. Yeah. So just um, for your understanding, this comes under yeah. the heading of understanding the energetics of the mass energy of mankind. So that's the chapter heading. Okay. Just a little head, just a little head. I love it. <laughs> your soul's consciousness seeks to unify the fragmentation of your unresolved emotions by resolving your denial. The resolution of your denial enables you to experience the evolution of your soul and to free yourself from enduring your own perpetual cycles of soul oppression. Evolution is freedom, which will enable you to feel the core of your soul resonating with truth. Mm. Your denial and control isolates you from your truth, separating and disassociating you from the reality of being a significant, unique, independent individual soul 
of true source divine origin consciousness that's the label i give where we're from you can yeah. use great spirit universe yeah. whatever you like yeah so yeah um, what does that make you think and feel i love it and I may be completely off base in terms of what you were thinking or the inspiration for that, where that came from. But for me, it just spoke directly to what we were talking about, that Rumi quote, seek not for love, seek for the barriers within you that have been erected against love. To me, you're naming also what I said was the one thing, if I could do it, you know, that everyone I would wish for humanity, which is that it's not so much a game of becoming someone or something different it's living into the fullness of who you really are and so you talked about for example denial and control as i hear those as barriers between us and the truth of our fullness and our wondrousness right so for me i hear a powerful thread running through our conversation and then that paragraph does that speak to you or does it kind of go in a different place for you that quote? no it's it uh, most a lot of the time i notice especially with the insight and awareness book it sums up what we've been talking about mm-hmm. so which is always um brilliant but it is mm-hmm. and i write about denial and control they are mm-hmm. barriers so when i look at the the human energetics of the emo- emotional baggage so our soul's unconsciousness I break them down into barriers so the first we've got our core fears and beliefs and indoctrinations that are really ingrained I call them soul denial energy Mm -hmm. and then the next barrier is resistance denial avoidance and codependency and then it goes into image uh, images illusions and controlled identities like the roles we give each other so mm-hmm. I'm a mother, but I'm really Lorraine mothering, right? Mm-hmm. So, But if I just perceive myself as just one role, that's a controlled mm-hmm. identity. Right. And then there's judgment, manipulation, confusion and control again. That mm-hmm. is another barrier. And then there's what I refer to as controlled evolution, which um, mm-hmm. there's lots of different labels for that kind of energy, but anything that oppresses our ability to evolve so that could be a belief system, it could be indoctrinations. There's lots of reasons that mm-hmm. we stop our own evolution. And then there's what I refer to as the her- heresy barrier, which is indifference to truth, where we become so indifferent to truth that we don't value it, mm-hmm. um, which we can see society is, you know, mm-hmm. gallops along that path sometimes. Right. Right. Um, resentment of reality, where we get we have an arrogant perception of what should be happening for us and reality is different, so it creates right. this um, resentment right. within us. And, right. yeah, there's denial of reality. Yeah. Can I ask you, uh, did you say you think of those as levels or do they just exist as each uh, different barriers that exist? They're barriers that exist. So your okay. ricochet, uh, fr- from, from what I've explored and what I've written yeah. about, you're ricocheting throughout those barriers. It's it's not as simple as right. that. It's a little bit more complex because there's sure. there's different patterns that I call um, soul oppressive patterns as well, and mm-hmm. there's all these different energetic reactions, and also we have right. external, and right. what what our internal soul system, our soul's unconsciousness, you know, the same system is the same as what's in the mass, but we also have collective energy. So if I've mm-hmm. got resentment, 
then there's a collective energy of resentment. And I and I explain them to people as think of them as like banks and bank accounts. I've got resentment and I've invested money in that bank account. Mm-hmm. And then, it, it, you know, so it's stored in two places. Right. Yeah, right, so right. I kick off my resentment and right. all of a sudden I can feel a mother load coming at me because it right. wants to fuel it up. It wants me to reinvest. Right. We have an attachment to it. Yes. <laughs> yes. It has the attachment to us and we have the attachment to it. It's an right. exchange. Yeah. And it's in a mutual relationship. So then as I resolve mine, I yeah. actually start taking that out of the mass and all of a sudden we've got to change. So. Yes. So, yeah. Right. So that's how I've, I've spent thirty years mapping um, mm-hmm. our soul's unconsciousness mm-hmm. and and their barriers to us evolving. So yeah, I have. If there's time for just one more quote, that topic of control. Yeah, I have a quote from Alan Watts that I think is just beautiful. That might be a nice way to start to wrap things up. Yeah, go for it. He wrote uh, in his book, "The Wisdom of Insecurity." So for me, again, this is you were talking about control. It came up a number of times in those barriers. There is a contradiction in wanting to be perfectly secure in a a universe whose very nature is momentariness and fluidity. But the contradiction lies a little deeper than the mere conflict between the desire for security and the fact of change. Because if I want to be secure, that is protected from the flux of life, I am wanting to be separate from life. Yet it is this very sense of separateness which makes me feel insecure. To be secure means to isolate and fortify the I. But it is just the feeling of being an isolated I which makes me feel lonely and afraid. In other words, the more security I can get, the more I shall want. To put it still more plainly, the desire for security and the feeling of insecurity are the same thing. To hold your breath is to lose your breath. A society based on the quest for security is nothing but a breath retention contest in which everyone is is taut as a drum and as purple as a beat. Yeah. See, I see. I love that. Yeah, I do too. And I see the the sense of security that we try to create is often an illusion <laughs> and we can't hold it. Right. And, and when it busts, you know, a good friend of mine once said she's no longer with us. Gail once said to me, um, there's two people, there's two kinds of people in the world. There's those that the bubble has busted and there's those that hasn't busted enough yet. And and I get what she meant was that when we hold on to an illusion and we think that's going to give us security, somewhere along that's going to blow. Right. You know, and then and right. then can we deal with that? So right. right. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Me too. Thank you for giving me this time to explore some of these questions a little more in depth. 